Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We're joined by legendary technical illustrator Giorgio Piola to talk about his favourite F1 cars and their designers. This special edition of the Autosport Podcast, we're fortunate enough to be joined for the first time by the legendary technical illustrator Giorgio Piola, of course, an important part of Motorsport Network. You can see his his drawings on autosport.com, motorsport.com, all of our titles, and we're privileged enough to uh, to have him join us. Now, the Monaco Grand Prix is, is coming up, and that's an important race for you, your first Formula One race, I think, in 1969. Yes, it was uh, my first race that I attended was the dream of a boy becoming a reality because I sent a drawing, a drawing of a Formula One car to a magazine, an Italian magazine, and they published, and they said, by my surprise, by, 20, by the way, 20, in 20 days' time, there will be Monaco Grand Prix. Do you want to go there to cover as a technical illustrator for us? And of course, uh, I was dreaming this, and I went and was really very shocked by the ambience. It was my really first time that I was close to a Formula One car. Things have changed a lot since then. In the more than 800 races you've, you've attended since in Formula One. Yes, uh, everything can change. But I have to say, uh, thank God that the, the passion is still there. I'm still motivated as uh, when I was young. And I'm happy because I built up of my dream. I made a career because you have to remember that that time was not existing. Somebody was going to the races and making drawing. Now, a lot of other people try to do this, but I was the one that made for as a beginning. The trailblazer. Yeah, <laughs> started all, and of course, you first worked for Auto Sport early seventies, wasn't it? You... Yes, yes, yeah. I, I started to work. My, I was really very lucky because in that time everything was easier. But I was really very lucky because I started immediately with the best magazine in the world. I started with Autosport, as you said, early seventy, and also other, really the most important magazine about Formula One in the world. Also because uh, I was able to talk uh, English and French, and this helped me a lot. Of course, magazines like Autosprint and Gazzetta dello Sport, the newspaper in uh, in Italy, that you're you're synonymous with. So, well, given that uh, this is a 
a big anniversary for you. We thought it'd be a good chance to talk about some of your favourite Grand Prix cars in that period that you've you've seen up up close. But before we get into specific cars, what what makes a favourite car for you? Are you talking about the best cars, the most innovative cars, ones that are special to you? What why have you chosen the cars we're going to talk about today? Most of the time, I choose those cars like the most innovative, what are, we call the milestone of a Formula One. Uh, cars and that are the one that I, that I choose there are two examples also that I choose just because they are a particular feeling but usually are the most innovative car that I saw in my career well let's start off with your first choice which is the the Lotus 72 now we recently did a podcast where we tried to talk about the just about well, the side which was the the greatest Grand Prix car, the greatest, well, the greatest Formula One car, and actually the Lotus Seventy Two was the one that uh, that came out on top for us. Of course, twenty race wins and in the World Championship, multiple championship winning uh, was used by uh, by Lotus from nineteen seventy onwards. So, why do you pick the Seventy Two? Because it completely changed the shape of a Formula One car with a wedge nose. If you remember, the previous car was a Lotus 49, still with the big radiator in the front with the traditional nose and the traditional shape of a Formula One that is here. They were called cigars, very slim. While the Lotus 72 with a wedge nose and especially the very thin, very aerodynamic shape and the radiator on the side. And then also on top of this, inboard brakes front and rear that was if you want a very dangerous solution in the front and then it caused the accident of Jochen Rind in Monza but it was for sure a milestone car because it changed completely the shape of a Formula One cars. Well this is why we picked it as the as the greatest because as well as having all that success it did set the set the trend didn't it a fantastic car and of course Colin Chapman who I guess you'd have you'd have known in that period, uh, just a great innovator in this period. He was he was the guy that was always coming up with the next step, wasn't he? Yes, was the, considered the, the genius of Formula One in that year. And he made, again, a very, very, very important car, Lotus 25, Lotus 49, and then Lotus 72. Then later on, Lotus 78 and Lotus 79. There was the most important cars in those years. And, and Chapman himself... Obviously, he, he was very proud of the innovation. So, was he easy to talk to about about this stuff? Could you could you grab him in the in the paddock and get him to explain what he was doing and, and share the enthusiasm? Or was he a bit more? Aloof? I, I have to tell you that I was living the best time of Formula One in this size because there was no problem at all. I I could see the car really very very close. There are picture of me in shorts inside the garage taking notes of the cars and uh, especially with Colin Chapman had a wonderful relationship also because uh, I was able to anticipate uh, the Lotus 78 uh, and unfortunately a British journalist went to to Colin saying that I was doing I wanted to do the drawing to publish before the launch and the launch at that time was in the Royal Albert Hall with a big big promotion was with a big sponsor so Colin came to me and this and he was really upset because I was ruining the surprise of this car and myself I, I destroyed the drawing in front of him I didn't use it but for sure I tell you there was no more any problem I could even go under the car to see the, the shape of the sideboards that there was no problem at all and the relationship were wonderful. Dramatically different uh, to the way you have to work today, unfortunately, much, much uh, harder. Well, let's move on to the second car, the Ferrari 312B, a successful series of cars. The B3 specifically, I think you've chosen. Yes, because the B3 was the mother of the Ferrari T that won the championship in 75 with Niki Lauda. And again, was a milestone car because it changed again the shape of Formula One car. Big delta wing in the front, completely different shape of the side pods, very round, quite an oval shape if seen from the top, and the long, long radiator on the side. And this was very important because during this, there was no more radiator under the rear wing, and this solution was affecting a lot the efficiency of uh, 
the rear wing. And all the other cars, for example, the competitor of Ferrari, the McLaren M23, has this solution that revealed to be a lot less efficient. And so Ferrari was very important. The B3 was made by Forgieri. He made a completely big revolution starting from the Grand Prix of Austria. Only one car driven by Merzario. And I made, as you said before, to working with the Autosport, I made a very big story on the Ferrari B3, more than 40 drawings, and was published by Autosport, and it was maybe one of my best work of my career. And of course, the, the B3 was 1973, 74, and then briefly at the start of 75, of course, Nicky Lauda drove it, Clay Regazzoni, as well as, as well as Mazzario. Jackie X, I think, would have, uh, would have raced it as, as well. But Fugieri is a, is a guy who sometimes, certainly in, in the UK, maybe we, we overlook almost. He's sometimes a bit of an afterthought to some of these guys like Chapman and Gordon Murray, these people. But Fugieri, he was a really important guy, wasn't he? You know, really good idea. So what, what was he like? It was a fantastic... I have to say that in Formula 1 myself, uh, due to the fact maybe the, because I'm uh, looking more on the technical aspect, I found these people really great, man. Not only genius, but really 360 degrees man with the culture, with interest, with Forgier, with, with Gordon Murray, with Patrick Head, with Colin Chapman. You could talk about anything that was really very deep and interesting people. And Forgier made... Uh, those cars that were fantastic. The Ferrari T was the, 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 the daughter of the B3. The, the big difference was only the transversal gearbox. That's the reason why they called T. And it was a fantastic car. And he was really a big genius for me. Still now is the biggest name in Formula 1, in Italy especially. But it has to be in the group of those that we consider the genius of a Formula 1. And of course, these these guys. I mean, the the people today. There's still similar sort of things, like you say, about these sort of cultured, broad interest in the world. Although it's just much harder to to kind of bring that out to people. But Foggieri, of course, is still around, but obviously, long since uh, long since retired. Just yeah, has that same, I guess, passion, isn't it? And they always, I always find these these guys want to they want to share their passion for the for the design for the engineering you know it's a, it's a they're very proud of, of what they've done which is obviously great for you yeah when you can ha help to understand what they're trying to do yes I, uh, for example i have to say one of my heroes is uh, patrick head and very often i remember Anne bracelo that was uh, the press uh, attachment of uh, williams they used to say okay george an interview 20 minutes with Patrick had that the interview was never 20 minutes. Maybe it was even more than the double, but not because I wanted to do a question or I wanted to talk with him, but because he's so passionate and he wants to explain so much that he was going very long in making the interview. Because as he found somebody interested in Formula One and we were talking, we could talk even without stop. And this is what is wonderful because in Formula One, especially before, all the people that was working in Formula One, they were passionate. Myself, I made, as I said, my dream to become a reality. And I believe the same, Patrick. So when we talk together, it's wonderful because we, we are living in the same passion and with the same love for Formula One and the technology. No, he's a fascinating guy, Patrick Head, and the the enthusiasm and passion really does uh, does come across. Well, let's move on to the next car that is kind of connected to this, the, the Ferrari 312T. Very successful car, iconic car, you, you would say. Yes, an iconic car, very successful. And I have to say, I choose uh, to make a table of that car because, uh, as it always happened, when a car wins the championship, the magazine wants to have the drawing immediately. And while uh, the Ferrari B3, I made a very big cutway, uh, 30 days of work uh, and very detailed, I had to do the Ferrari T in a hurry, like a three, four days. So I made a table also with the suspension that I designed. And again, those suspension for me, are some of the, maybe some of my best work I've ever done in Formula One. They are so precise, so accurate. While unfortunately, the cutaway had to do in a hurry and I was not very pleased about this drawing. And I want to do again, um, when I retire to go to races, to do again properly this car because it's a legendary car. I have to say, some of those drawings, I've seen uh, you show me some of the originals of the the large ones. They're unbelievable, the amount of detail in them and the, even just like the shading and the dots. It's, you know, they're, they're all works of art, aren't they? 
uh, you have to consider apart the, the beauty or not, because everything is uh, everybody can like something different or not. But the fact that well, to take those do those drawing it takes between thirty forty five days. It gives you the amount of passion and accuracy. And I remember all the shadows. If you remember, are made by single little point rapidograph zero three. And just to do a tire, sometimes I need to do in three, four days. And I had to stop at one moment because I have no more feeling in the hands keeping the rapidograph. And that was really, really very hard. And then on top of this, at that time, I used to draw on a transparent paper. And you can't do mistake with the paper because if you do the mistake, you have to cut it with the blade to shave, and then you ruin uh, the quality of the paper. While now, for example, it's very easy. I do still the drawing by hand, but I know that with Photoshop, when I scan the drawing, I can correct mistake. So I tell you, the tension at that time was really very hard, and you had to stop every, let's say, three, four, five hours just to make a little walk, just to go look outside, because the tension was incredible, because you were not... It was like, uh, like to say, a funny comparison that comes up to me now. It's like from a Formula One driver to drive in Monaco, where you can't make mistake, and to drive in a circuit, you have open space, safety everywhere, uh, so you, you, don't, you don't have to, to push so much in the tension. See, it's just easy now, isn't it? You can correct your mistakes. Yeah, take a photo. I like to. I like to joke that you just put the photo into a program and it does no, it for you. <laughs> no, it's not exactly like this. But uh, as you said, you you pointed out something very because in a way I'm I'm sorry I'm miserable because those if you have to tell me choose your drawing of your life I will choose only those in black and white because those were really making drawing from a white piece of paper coming 30 days of work. Now everybody of us is retracing picture. Myself still by hand. So this has give you the impression of a little bit more artistic, if you want. Everybody else with the computer, so a little bit more precise, but cold and not so uh, full of, of spirit, let's say. But for me, it's not anymore making. I don't consider them really my drawing. My drawing are those in black and white. Some of those are absolutely unbelievable, the, the detail, the size of them as well. Just just sensationally. So the Ferrari 312T, obviously the, the 312T series went on for a long time. Um, are, you, are you talking specifically about the, the first one, the T, before the T2 came along? We yes. won't talk about the T5. That didn't do very well at all <laughs> no, in 1980. The T5, but, no. but, but of course, the, the T4 was a championship. The T4 winner. was, again, a championship car. And, and again, those cars, uh, like also the Lotus 72, the Ferrari uh, B3T and the McLaren uh, MP4, they are cars that last a lot. Uh, so they are not winning one season, but their philosophy, their architecture, they last for several years because there was, as I said, the milestone. Let's go on to the next car, which I think a lot of people will remember fondly, the Tyrrell P34, of course, six-wheeler, four wheels at the front. Uh, 1976 and 1977, that, that car race, of course, had a 1-2 in the, in the Swedish Grand Prix in 76. Of course, Jody Schechter winning from Patrick Depaye. Now, this is, I guess it's obvious reasons, this, this car. So, I presume you've chosen it because it's so audacious, this six-wheel design. Yes, it was so different. And then I I chose this car because, again, I made a lot of drawing on that car. And that was also, I'm very pleased because it was the first time that I work also for a team. Because Ken Tire, we were sitting beside one beside on the flight of going to Rio de Janeiro. And he offered me to do the brochure of the of the car at that time there was a, a few sponsor that was paying and was one of the few first brochure and uh, i did the, all the drawing of the car and i found that the derek garner the designer very helpful and a very wonderful personality so again more than the technology of that car uh, i choose this drawing because i love this drawing from feeling from passion and from the relationship with the team because it's one of those cars, isn't it? It's it's fondly remembered. It wasn't really a great success. I mean, it was it was a it was a decent Grand Prix car as well as that win. It had some some good results, but it was quite troublesome. And the 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 four wheels at the front concept kind of worked, I guess, in terms of reducing frontal area, etc. But it was a 
it was a mixed bag as a, as a car in terms of success and technical excellence, wasn't it? Yes, the biggest problem then, uh, it was something nothing to do with the car, but Goodyear in that time uh, made a big evolution the year after, with, uh, in the 77, with the rear tyre. And due to the fact that uh, uh, maybe they were thinking there could be some other team doing a six-wheel car with four, uh, four wheel in the front, uh, they made uh, the tyre for Tyrrell. But then it was too expensive uh, and not very logic to build up uh, just for one team uh, the evolution of the front tire. So at the end, uh, the Tyrrell six-wheel was handicapped by the evolution of the tire in the back that didn't cope with the evolution of the small tire in the front. When did you first become aware of it? Because it was a quite a long lead time project, wasn't it? They were working on this car in secret in, in 1975, weren't they? Before even some members of the team didn't know about it for, for quite a while. It was a little shed with a secret project going on. But unfortunately for them, as it happened with the Brabham with the uh, flat engine, I was able to, to make a sketch the week before the launch. And uh, I was, again, very proud. I remember when there was the launch, especially of the Brabant, they said, uh, this guy has to be a, a completely surprise, but thanks to this man sitting in the third row, it's not anymore a surprise. But I have to say, at that time, it was quite easy because it was enough to make, in the case of the form, uh, front wheel and did uh, affect uh, who cares about the shape of the car. Uh, the the idea was to, to to say that it was front wheel, but I have to say again, in those years, was very easy to find the new solution because there was the testing during the winter and mechanics, especially in the British team, there was changing very often from one team to the other. So it was quite easy to find the secret, let's say, of McLaren talking with the, the people from Lotus or the way, other way around because there was a lot of talking. In the evening, they went all, all together in the same pubs and so there was a lot of communication. And myself... I was always very keen in talk with the right people in each team. Yeah, very much so. That's how you find out what's going on. Well, let's move on to the the next car, which is the, well, it's kind of two cars, really. Mainly the Lotus 79, which, of course, won the 78 Drivers and Constructors Championship, Mario Andretti. Uh, but also the Lotus 78, which was the precursor, which people often say the 79 was the first Formula One scares ground effect car, but the 78 obviously was actually the first uh, first to do it. Yes, you are right. Everybody's talking about the 79 because, of course, it was so successful that Mario Andretti and Ronnie Peterson were really playing and were not driving because uh, the car was so fantastic that they were using, let's say, 80% of the potential of the car. But the Lotus 79 could never exist if it was not before the Lotus 78 made by Tony Southgate. And it was the, the first one that together with the wing in the side pods put the mini skirt. And the reason why that car was creating ground effect was given by the seal of the mini skirt to the ground. Without the seal of the mini skirt, there was only wing without the venturi effect. So very miserable uh, gain of downforce while with the skirt became a, a, the really the, 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 the potential of this car. And all the work was done to make the seal working properly. And I guess this is a, a good example of Chapman's innovation, wasn't it? Because he brought that into, into Formula One. Wouldn't necessarily say Lotus mastered it, but they got there first, they benefited from it, and then I guess Williams really took a big step with it. Patrick Head, fantastic at seizing on these ideas and then engineering them almost to perfection. Yes, if you want, the Williams was... Not say the copy because it's a bad word, but uh, following the principle of the Lotus 79, build in a wonderful way because the chassis was much stiffer, the suspension was working much better, and the brakes were working much better. While the Lotus 79 at that time, the aerodynamic advantage was so big that was compensated lack of stiffness and, and brake and suspension because of the, the two drivers were really playing. And while, uh, if you want, the, the we, if they compete in the same year, Williams and the Lotus 79, there was no history from the Lotus 79 because Williams was a much better car. But the one, the Lotus was the one that completely made the revolution. So they had such a big aerodynamic advantage that they dominate the season. 
Absolutely, and why it's so well remembered. Well, the next car follows just after the Ligier JS11. So that ran in 1979 and 1980. It's maybe not the first car that people think of, but again, a race-winning car, very successful car. So why, why have you picked the Ligier? I pick up the Ligier because it was the typical example of the wonderfully interesting work that uh, uh, was uh, con connected with my technical staff to find the secret while the team trying to hide. That car was particularly fast on the straight because there was an illegal system in the side pods, a system of little window the opening in French they used to call clapette, that a certain pressure was opening and it was allowed him to have a much more straight line speed and less drag. And to do this, uh, to cover this, the mechanics was always putting some towel on the top of the radiator because it was in the conjunction in the lowest point of the radiator to the side pods that was this little opening in the point where the, the wing section was closer to the ground. And I remember in uh, Germany there was hiding so much uh, and I was standing there because I wanted to do the picture. They left the car going out with the towel and it was overeating so they had to stop. But he came, uh, watching England, the United States Grand Prix, and Lafitte had a crash. And that time, the pit lane was down in the hill, and the big garage was up in the hill in a fabricator staff. And uh, I realized that I took the car damage up in the hill. I went there, and thank God I was so lucky that the accident destroyed the bodywork just in the point where there was the clapette. So I could do the picture, and coming up down from the hill, I remember Ducarouge saw me, and he immediately realized, and I made with the, my finger, like okay, done, and he <laughs> hated me, and funny, he never never, never admit even 20 years after why Lafitte admit that system was illegal, and they couldn't use anymore, and so the, uh, the car became a lot uh, slower on the straight because there was always that story wasn't there they said oh we lost we lost a setup sheet or something which yeah, of course yeah, yeah. was, but was the, nonsense because the it was reason why it was this but funny uh Ducarouge never 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 admitted <laughs> that's excellent i mean those moments where you where you can really pick up on something like that and they know you've got them must be very satisfying yeah yes it was uh, satisfying but i tell you at the, that time was uh, like uh, uh a very gentleman way of working uh no cheating, nothing was really very funny. And it was a kind of a game, an interesting game. You don't get threatened by team principals back then, which, no. which may have happened recently. We won't, uh, we won't yes, talk too much about yes. that. <laughs> this is a different story. When you, now uh, when I you have to say uh, life in Formula One is still interesting because I love always my, my work, uh, but it's a lot less interesting than before. Let's move on to the next car, which is... Uh, a car that didn't really race much uh, at all, really. The uh, the the Lotus 88 twin chassis. This is again Chapman. Yes, again you see Chapman. Sometimes he was uh, uh, able to open a new era, open a new solution. But then sometimes he was he wanted to do always something new, something new, and sometimes. Uh, it was impossible. The typical case is the Lotus 88. As a principle, as idea, yeah, theoretically in the wind tunnel was a fantastic idea because two separate, to have two, two chassis and two separate, the handling problem with the aerodynamic problem was a wonderful idea. Unfortunately, going to the track, the car was totally, totally unpredictable because sometimes the downforce was massively big, but sometimes the air, instead of going on top and under the bodywork, was going inside the bodywork, so creating lift. So the driver was coping with a, a setup that was a lot of downforce and lift. So unpredictable, very dangerous. And I know from uh, Elio De Angelis, but I believe also Nigel Manson, the day that they banned the car, he was very happy. He said to me, now, finally, I will drive a Formula One car because that car was totally unpredictable. It's fascinating to see what would have happened had that concept continued because it did have promise, didn't it? There, was, there were reasons why it could have worked really well. Yes, but uh, I tell you, going it, it happened very often that the car very sophisticated on the on the wind tunnel, or they have a very narrow window 
to work uh, from the aerodynamic point of view, then they become unpredictable and difficult to drive. Very much so, yeah. That's the, uh, that's the challenge, isn't it? A driver can only drive to what they're confident with with the car. If it's, uh, if it's uh, peaks are high, that's one thing, but you always drive to the troughs. That's always what Gary Anderson tells me anyway. Yeah. And Gary is a master of uh, making a car, let's say, wise, uh, drivable in any situation. And very often, for example, another little example, when Adrian Newey made uh, the Leighton House uh, with a very narrow chassis in the front, uh, the two drivers could move the feet uh, and after 20 laps uh, had the prob- blood circulation problem. So even if the car was fantastic, that to slow down because it was impossible to drive. It's a good example of sometimes the genius needs the 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 person in reality to bring them down to earth sometimes, and you get that's where you get these these team ups, isn't it? The, the genius and the the real world engineer, almost if you will. That's a slightly crude way of putting it. But. Yes, for example, one example fantastic was Ross Braun and Rory Byrne. Rory Byrne, the genius, but uh, uh, Ross, the man that was able to come down to take. Uh, Let's say now we we build the car, now we have to do this, we have to be reliable, because these people very often, otherwise they go on uh, uh, making uh, wind tunnel research uh, till the end uh, of the season and, and the car will not be reliable. One wonderful example is this year, Mercedes was able to do the dream of an aerodynamicist because they build on purpose two cars. The two uh, cars was starting from the same point of view, the same point. They build the first car, stopping the evolution in the wind tunnel in November, so just to be sure to have a car reliable and to start the testing. And they went on till the last, uh, really last moment in the wind tunnel research, and they came out the week after with a car that started from the same base and yet the same mechanics, the same cooling, everything the same, but with aerodynamic was... Uh, completely different they said even nearly something 1000 pieces of difference between the the two car and that the car was a study to do the season but they did the, the first one just to be safe but again a big potential from mercedes that is really frightening yeah very much so i mean the, the manufacturing capacity for example if nothing else is is incredible uh, yeah fantastic from uh, for them well the next car uh, the McLaren MP4, MP4-1, um, it's often called. Obviously, an important car for McLaren because this is when McLaren morphed into the Ron Dennis era. McLaren, of course, the, the P4 Project 4 was Ron Dennis's team. See, in the, the 70s and pushing into the 80s, it was Teddy Meyer that were on the team. Then kind of this Marlboro-assisted takeover to, to kind of bring the team back up to date. So this was kind of the start of the McLaren we know today or even a few years ago and it was really successful yes and then uh, the, the the again another genius john barnard and he was the one that pushed to have the all the car in carbon fiber john barnard is maniac about refining about uh, the beauty also because uh, his car very often there was very beautiful and he had the idea to build the, uh, the chassis in carbon fiber and to do this they went to america salt lake city to the hercules was doing the shuttle the shuttle for uh, going to the moon and uh, this technology it changed completely the way of building the cars in formula one and uh, the mp4 the first one was the mother again of a series of car that was very successful during the year the, the one that uh, immediately was uh, fantastic was the mp4 2 they won two consecutive championships with Prost and Lauda, was uh, with the Porsche engine. It was, again, the same chassis. The chassis was exactly the same as the MP4, the first one. And uh, this concept uh, uh, made the evolution during this, the year, but basically was the, the original MP4. We, then they have the Coca-Cola shape was the first one. So, again, a very, very important milestone, again, car. Well, the MP4 too, which is another one on your list. And, of course, the other fascinating thing about that is the it's almost a, the, the kind of proto-modern car in that the amount of work they did, John Barnard, with with Porsche to make sure that that engine fitted in. It was really about the compromises and the integration, which is what we hear teams like Mercedes and Ferrari talking about now. It's all about engine and chassis integration. And and the 4-2 was really a, a step forward from what everyone else was doing in that regard, wasn't it? Yes, uh, JB, John Barnard gave to Porsche really 
the shape, the size of the, has to be the engine to, to, to cope with this idea of the car. So really, it was a, the biggest, maybe, we never saw again uh, such a big integration between engine manufacturer and chassis builder, and uh, it was a perfect combination. I think, of course, in, in 84, dominant championship win, Alan Prost missing out on the championship by half a point to, to Nicky Lauda. So yeah, John Barnard, another one of those characters who just just a, a massive driving force in terms of innovation in Formula 1, particularly 80s, early 90s. He was he was one of, one of those guys, wasn't he? Yes, I, I do believe that uh, if we talk about the, the recent uh, era of uh, racing car, he was the one that uh, made the more stuff than everybody else because uh, then we talk also the Ferrari and a lot of other stuff like uh, the knife uh, uh, junction of the of the suspension arm, uh, the, the, okay, the, the semi-automatic gearbox, uh, the pedal on the steering wheel, the torsion bar. He made a lot of stuff and really is a, is a genius. He has also a very difficult character, but this genius sometimes we have to have uh, some, uh, let's say, not negative, but difficult aspect of their character. JB it was fantastic and also when he made, went to Ferrari, he made some choice that at the end was very positive. So that's why you're such a difficult character, Giorgio. <laughs> yes, but unfortunately, I'm not a genius. I'm only a bad character sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we a lot of us have that uh, have that problem. But I think uh, people might disagree when they look at some of the, the drawings. We, we have kind of skipped one car chronologically for good reason, because the MP4 1 and the 2 connect so much. Uh, the Brabham BT52, a fantastic, uh, a fantastic car. And uh, you talked about the the MP4 to kind of creating the Coke bottle idea. Obviously, the 52 was an extreme the other way, wasn't it? It was kind of almost this sort of arrow shape at, at the back, really just really distinctive car. And of course, the the product of the mind of another of these geniuses, the, the great Gordon Murray. Yes, uh, Gordon Murray, again, another genius. Uh, and we, if we talk about his 52, we have to not to forget uh, the BT42 and the BT44. There's this uh, triangular shape of the chassis that was completely unique. And again, there was a wonderful car. And uh, Gordon, again, is a genius, uh, 360 degrees uh, interesting personality because it's not only about racing car, about music, about everything, culture. is uh, one of my favorite person to talk uh, uh, about uh, and for example for the Autosport Award as you know I was so uh, lucky because I was at the table with Patrick Head and Gordon Murray and for me it was a, a dream night and, and me I was and, on the table as well yes <laughs> but I'm talking about I'm sorry no, you're I, not I, my dream you know, that's a very, very different but, <laughs> but again uh, and, and uh, again uh, it's fantastic because that car was completely different from everybody else but we have to say that differently from the previous one that we talked, it didn't create a trend. It became like a, a unique shape of the car. It was very narrow in the front, very slim, and then did this big weight distribution to the back with big radiator, with a big heavy uh, four-cylinder BMW engine, the most powerful because in qualifying at that time was over 1,000 uh, horsepower. And uh, also that car, I like it because the shape was beautiful. And looking at all the details, uh, again, Gordon Murray, like John Barnard, is very keen on detail. For example, the suspension arm I made by solid piece uh, machine instead of being fabricated as it was at that time and were beautiful uh, pieces. And I always uh, say often, the Formula One pieces can be in a modern art museum because they are wonderful. They are so clean, so efficient, so pure. And the liners really, to me, are fascinating. And for example, in my house, I have some little piece of Formula One cars and for me, a piece of art. No, very, very much so. And we've uh, you've done some great drawings of the BT52. We've got one on the wall in the, in the room next door. Uh, so that's uh, one of the, well, we've got, your, the wall's covered with some of uh, some of your uh, your great drawings, but yeah, of course, 1983 won the world championship. Uh, Nelson Piquet synonymous with that car. Well, let me move on to the Ferrari 640. Now, again, an innovative car. The the, the paddle shift gearbox, the 
semi-automatic box is the thing everyone remembers it for. Yes, this is the mother of the modern car, and not only Formula One car, because now even a city car has the pedal gear shift. And uh, we have to remember that that time was a, sim a simple, normal longitudinal gearbox with hydraulic-activated uh, actuator. And uh, I remember when I did the drawing, uh, I like it because uh, that car was fantastic, but I remember also from uh, uh, a practical point of view, I like that car because when I made uh, for the first, uh, the drawing of the steering wheel with the pedal was the drawing that was published by all, all, all magazine and TV in the world. So it was an easy, very draw easy drawing, 45 minutes of work, uh, but it was the, the most successful in terms of, uh, of practical result for me. And again, that car is the mother because not only the semi-automatic gearbox, but the torsion bar, the shape of the car completely different. And uh, so in this, uh, John Bada was very good. And he was also very good because he didn't trust uh, to the Italian and he built the chassis in a way that was impossible, impossible to put a gear shift level. And he was right because, uh, as you remember, the car won. Uh, never, nobody knows why he could win at the first race. Uh, was fantastic. Of course, Nigel Mansell, yeah, that, didn't expect to finish. <laughs> yes, they even changed the steering wheel during the race. Of course, yeah, the five, so, the five wheel. So pit it was a completely unpredictable that win. Fantastic, and after that win, the car was never reliable because the alternator was not able to charge enough at that time. All the the, the, the power that was required by the electronic management of the gearbox. And so uh, John Bana was right to do to not trust uh, the Italian side of the Ferrari and to build the car with no option. So they went on and finally became successful. Prost nearly won the championship uh, in, in 90. And, uh, and then again is the, the car... The made the, the a step forward and the, the mother of all the Formula One cars. Absolutely, yeah, that, that shape's very iconic, isn't it? And of course, the the Aero Henri Duran was there, wasn't he? On the Aero side, so uh, yeah, very uh, very successful car. Of course, the the uh, the six forty did win three races, but so many so many retirements. I think Gerhard Berger didn't didn't finish a race until about. 12 races in, although he did miss Monaco because he had that huge shunt at uh, Tamburello with uh, the fire and uh, yeah, uh, got out of that but did, did miss uh, miss Monaco. Well, well, the final car, jumping forward a bit, it's uh, the most recent car and maybe a, a surprising one to people, the Red Bull RB5 of 2009. And this was the, the first car that made Red Bull a winning team, uh, the famous 1-2 in China in the wet when Sebastian Vettel won from Mark Webber. But there's a very, very good reason for this car being so important that often gets overlooked. Yes, because again, was a car 10 years ahead of everybody. The shape of the car was incredible. I remember that when I saw the car, I was so astonished that even if I, I know that it was not important for, for me to say, I went to Adianui and say thank you because I had such a big emotion to see the car because it was completely different from everybody else. And most of it that took my attention was that rear suspension, the first one pull rod with exhaust nearly blowing on the suspension arm and nobody could believe it that could be reliable because everybody was believing that those exhausts was creating reliability problem. While it was one of the secrets of that car that was fantastic and I have to tell you if the if the Braun GP didn't have the double diffuser the car was could dominate the season. Unfortunately for Red Bull the the Braun GP had the double diffuser and they dominated the first part of the season, even if Red Bull won even without the double diffuser. But when Red Bull put the double diffuser, there was no history anymore for the Braun GP. I thank God for Jenson Button. He won all the races, so there was not splitting the point with Barrichello, Rubens Barrichello. Otherwise, uh, Red Bull was much better. And for me, if I have to say the car of the year, I'm sorry, I hope Rosborn doesn't get upset, but we mention RB5 and not Ron Brown GP. No, absolutely. And uh, and that did 
set the trend. Obviously, Red Bull dominated the next four seasons, and still the things like the the rake starts to creep up with the with the RB, RB5 as well, and that's now standard for for most teams uh, now in Formula One to have that that kind of attitude with the car, like the rear jacked up almost when it's uh, when it's not moving. So again, it's that it's that trendsetter, isn't it? Yeah, it's again, uh, and this year we saw also something nice. Uh, uh, Red Bull in the in the last season went uh, with a completely different uh, direction of shape of side pods uh, and uh, uh, with less undercut in the low section, let's say in all the part uh, uh, with the Coca-Cola in the back of starting, let's say, from the fuel tank area to the back of the car. And we have to say that this year, Mercedes, uh, Ferrari, uh, uh, Toro Rosso, um, Renault, everybody else, uh, try to make uh, a similar shape uh, of the bodywork like uh, Red Bull. So again, it's creating another trend. And as you mentioned, also the rake setup, uh, only Mercedes doesn't have it, but all the other cars are using the rake setup that was introduced again by Red Bull. Well, that's your list of cars, and there's also lots of uh, videos being released with you, you talking about these cars as well. But it's interesting to note that between the penultimate and the last car, there's a 20-year gap from 1989 with the Ferrari 640 to the, the Red Bull RB5. And I guess that just reflects the fact that there was just less to be discovered and invented, wasn't there? We've seen, I guess, this decline from the, the days where you could be, you have these inspirational designers like Colin Chapman could come up with an idea, not even necessarily nail the idea that well, but they have a period where they're they're dominant and the, the game leaps forward. But now it, it's more and more become this incremental gains, hasn't it? You have to remember something that is fundamental, the limitation given by the rules. Of course, yeah. Uh, the, the rules became so uh, tight, so severe, that there was no time for fantasy. And if you remember, 2009 was the introduction again of new rules. And starting from a white piece of paper, Adrianui was fantastic in creating something new. And... Uh, and they are always very useful when there are uh, new rules. But we have to say also that the limitations are so big. We saw also now, for example, when they introduced the new rules in 2017, uh, Ferrari was able to, to make, if you want, a revolution. Not big like uh, the RB5, but the solution of the deformable structure outside the, the shape of the side pods uh, was again something completely new and again is given by the new rules in the area that you were talking before there was a certain stability of rules so it, it is really very difficult to find a new solution because you are very limited by the rules because you can do anymore for again in 2017 they gave more freedom to this uh, to the barge board area and we saw in the last two two years, uh, again, a big, big evolution in the using the barge were very sophisticated, so much that for this year, they put again a little reduction, but not so much because we still see uh, very, very complex uh, barge board, while the front wing has been completely reduced, and we saw, we see now a very much simpler front wing, while till last year was a lot of upper flap uh, uh, turn in vain and whatever this because it's given by the limitation of the rules I to say it's unbelievable now isn't it when you look at the barge boards i mean we say barge boards but it's, it's more than that but the amount of parts in it seen some of your drawings where these these multi-part incredibly complicated devices that you know how, how do you go about even drawing that even looking at it and trying to work out what's connected to what and all the different shapes and profiles that are involved in it Yes, uh, this I tell you is something that sometimes creates a nightmare because, uh, especially because they are all in carbon, sometimes it's very difficult to see exactly to evaluate the shape, and it takes also a lot of time. Sometimes when I do a drawing of a side pod, uh, barge board, and everything, it takes uh, the black and white drawing one hour, one hour. 20 minutes, but then making, putting the color and everything, sometimes it goes up to six hours. And if you think that I have to do four or five drawing per races, it's becoming really very hard. Yeah, I can imagine it's a phenomenal amount of work, but I, I guess it, it is a shame now that it is so limited. And given that you were around for those days where you would see these big steps, the fact that it's so 
incremental now when you're looking for the because obviously one of your great skills is you can even when it's tiny changes you can look at a car and you'll spot the difference and you'll often pick out a oh yeah the the angle of this flap on the not so much front wing but on the barge board has changed or you've got a great eye for that but do you get the same joy out of that as as what you'd have done in the 70s should we say when you had these big steps uh, i have to say of course before i was much happier and there was much more freedom but i still enjoy i still enjoy especially when i still understand that i can see the stuff before somebody else and uh, it's interesting and then i've always a very specific method in doing the picture that make uh, the difference with from uh, let's say from the photographer but I have to say that I still love my work. Uh, I don't like anymore to write, I have to say. Uh, but, uh, for example, making drawing for me, it's always a pleasure. It's always nice. And even when I'm relaxing at home, I do a little drawing of anything, even my mobile or, or a telephone or whatever, or a radio. I like to draw. I, I, it's something that I never stopped doing. When I relax, my way of relaxing is doing sketches. I have to say I've got phenomenal respect for people who can draw because I'm catastrophically bad at it. I couldn't draw the, the simplest thing. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I find it amazing that people like yourself can do that. So, uh, yeah, it's been fascinating to get a bit of an insight into your method and and some of these great cars that you've uh, you've enjoyed over the years. So, thank you very much, Giorgio. Thank you to you. It's uh, always a pleasure. Well, do check out autosport.com for all the latest news from Formula One and the world of motorsport and our plus subscriber area, where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists. Of course, plenty of Giorgio Piola's work turns up on autosport.com. Pick up Autosport magazine out every Thursday. Again, after each Grand Prix, we'll have a, a page of Giorgio's drawings in there for you to have a look at. And check out sister titles motorsport.com, F1 Racing magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo. Written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.